Welcome to the Pathologist Cut podcast. This RCPA podcast explores the broad medical specialty of pathology and the critical role pathologists play in medicine and healthcare. Hi, everyone. I'm Laurie Bott, President of the College. It's nice to have the opportunity to talk with you on this podcast. I took over this role from Michael Dre, who, due to the pandemic, had an interesting two years as president. Michael unexpectedly became the COVID-19 president. This created logistical problems for him, plus the need for many critical decisions as head of a medical college at the heart of the pandemic response. I caught up with Michael to reflect on his two years as president. It's three months now since I um, relinquished the presidency to to your capable hands, and um, a lot has changed over that time. I've reclaimed a lot more free time, but also I've lost track of things a little bit. You know, when you're president, you sort of feel like you're in the midst of everything happening all around you. And now that I'm not, it's quiet. It's, it's taking a little bit of getting used to. Well, you had a very, very busy presidency and a very unusual presidency. You are the COVID-19 <laughs> president of the college, it appears. How do you reflect yeah. back on that? You're right. It was um, certainly not what I expected. When I first started, it was all about forest fires. That was the national crisis. And then in February, things started taking hold with COVID. It was really busy, but it was also really focused. You know, you had a goal, you had something in mind that you were working on. And a lot of sort of other less relevant things were able to just fall by the by. I think in comparison with my predecessor, I spent far less time travelling, far less time in a plane. Um, And so that physical demands on being president with the travelling and jet lag, I didn't have to cope with. And I I think the previous presidents, that's been quite an onerous burden. So I I didn't have that to deal with. But certainly there were plenty of late teleconferences and video conferences, often daily, and preparing and thinking for that, as well as doing my normal day-to-day job. Certainly your plate is very full. What were your immediate reflections when the this virus coming out of Wuhan was mentioned? I don't think I believed that it was going to be such a big deal. I, you know, we've had those previous experiences of coronavirus, the MERS and the SARS in Hong Kong, and it was a bit of alarm, but it was always somewhere else and it wasn't going to affect us. So I think in the early stages, I was thinking it was just going to just blow over and, and life would continue as normal. But um, it soon became apparent with some of the the images and stories coming out of some of the other countries in in Middle East and in Europe that things were getting a little bit out of hand. One of my my very first podcasts that I hosted was talking to Mike Catton, who was was running the the Virology uh, Research Institute down in um, Melbourne. And just hearing him tell the story of uh, isolating the COVID-19, the first virus in in Melbourne, Australia, on um, Australia Day a couple of years ago, um, that was a a really exciting story that he was able to tell. And it really, to me, put the laboratories right in the forefront of um, the COVID epidemic. And we've stayed there, I think, all the way through. It's been a, a good test of our laboratory service, of our, uh, our standards that we keep, our adherence to quality so that our results are reliable. 
but also the downstream ability to genotype the virus and track it that way. Yeah, it's just been um, been a huge, huge effort. It's true. I, I, I totally agree. It's remarkable. And uh, we needed to scale up early on too. And uh, I think, one, uh, the supply companies were able to keep us supplied, luckily, with uh, um, equipment and reagents. And we have uh, that dependency on overseas supplies for these things, mm. but they were able to keep us supplied. And we scaled up to an extraordinary uh, level at the same time as we had to do the routine work that we always mm. do. A remarkable achievement, the scale we hit with the testing, the numbers in both countries, amazing. And, and that increase in scale was, was in orders of magnitude, you know, it was a thousandfold increase, which is just a phenomenal increase. Yes, it is absolutely amazing, Michael. And I, I think both countries have been extraordinary. Um, I, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation myself a little while ago, and this type of testing, PCR testing, was done at the level of about one in a thousand. So one in a thousand people every day would have this type of testing for different reasons. But at the height of our testing uh, of the, with the Omicron outbreak, we were testing one in a hundred of the, the citizens of Australia, at least during that uh, outbreak. It's a tenfold increase in the product productivity of that test, which is remarkable. And and your laboratory is not ten times bigger, and you know you, you yes. don't have ten times as much staff. It's um huge efficiencies in, in the laboratory systems. Huge efficiency, and um, and of course we we had to collect all those samples too. So we're having to um, set up systems, um, and the safest system, which was it. an innovation originally in this country. I think we actually observed that they were doing drive-through collection centres in uh, Korea. But uh, very quickly, we got the idea from those countries and we set up large-scale um, drive-through collections, which allowed the collecting to be done safely and on a scale. And then, as you mm -hmm. pointed out before, we scaled up the laboratories to unprecedented levels and people coped. They worked hard. They put in long hours. We trained new staff. And by hook or by crook, we we are able to provide extraordinary numbers of tests. The situation, Michael, in um, Australia over Christmas was just extraordinary. For the first time ever in Australia, I would say pathology tests were not able to be returned in a meaningful time frame. That was amazing. So I guess it was the, the greatest uh, demand ever for pathology, and, and it went beyond capacity, sadly. My calculation is that six things happened at once. The first thing was there was an increase in the number of cases due to the Omicron outbreak, and it hit virtually when Christmas was on. The positivity rate increased of all of the testing we were doing, so we suddenly weren't able to do pooling, which is this efficient way to do testing, so we lost capacity because of that. Number of states also set in place border requirements that needed PCR testing. On top of that, we had staff that were off work due to COVID infections themselves, or were off during because it was Christmas and it was the holiday period. And in my thoughts, on top of that, we had a population of people who, up to this point, had been advised to go and have a PCR test if there were minor symptoms or even no symptoms at all. 
So people turned up in all, all those settings in large numbers when the, the outbreak hit and it just overwhelmed the system. And we were able to do in Australia at that time 250,000 PCR tests per day, which is an extraordinary number, but it went beyond that and it all fell over in that period. 250,000 PCRs in a day, that's a mind-boggling number and that wasn't enough. And that wasn't enough. That in Australia, that's one in 100 uh, Australians around that time were getting tested. I, I guess as a guide to when you're going to hit your capacity in a country, it must be somewhere near to doing one in 100 of your citizens every day. I don't think any system would have coped. So rat testing is beginning to increase here in New Zealand and so we're testing both symptomatic and asymptomatic people. It's been used now to sort of aid decisions as to when to go back to work or when to go into isolation. How did rats work in the in the sort of the decision-making process um, over the last couple of months in Australia? Well, the, the use of rats was limited in Australia up to recently and with good reason. So rat testing in a low prevalence population has problems with sensitivity inherently and, and specificity. In other words, you have you're missing cases, false negatives, or you're calling things positive when they're not positives. As the prevalence got higher, they became more useful. And when PCR hit its capacity, well they just had to be used in that setting. There's widespread use now. They still have the uh, problems with the uh, false negatives. In, in fact, if it's in a people with no symptoms or mild symptoms, the sensitivity could be as low as um, 60%. In other words, they're only picking up six out of 10 cases who actually do have COVID. Is there a use? Um, certainly, I think in uh, certain settings, if repeatedly used for schools and perhaps other settings, they are useful despite those limitations. Personally, I think that you've always got to back them up with a PCR test, an accurate test, particularly people with symptoms. You just want to know if that person has COVID or not, or if it's a critical situation where you want to know if that person has COVID or not. PCR is the gold standard. The laboratory capacity is maxing out for PCR in New Zealand, and so people have been handed out rats tests to, to perform either in their car or at home and um, and then make decisions on that. I mean, I think the key to it and to good public health measures is if you have symptoms, you should isolate. Testing in many of these situations is uh, secondary to to that. And uh, if you hit the capacity in your country of your PCR testing, well, you only have rats to go to. It's my belief in Australia and New Zealand, whilst you've got uh, the capacity to use your PCR testing, that's still the superior test. So how do you think we we went? We've got the opportunity now to reflect back over two years. How do you think we went as a college and what influence do you think we had both Australia and New Zealand? I like to think we made a difference. I like to think that we were the voice of moderation, the voice of reason with all the various other interest groups and, and individuals. I like to think we were able to provide sound, sensible advice to those that needed it and to the decision makers um, so that they were able to make the right choices. 
in New Zealand, I don't think the college has quite such an impact in the broader health sector. Um, we were able to support our fellows, but the college per se wasn't, there's not a natural conduit from the politicians and the Ministry of Health to college for advice. And it was difficult to sort of try and make those relationships because they weren't there earlier. So I felt that as a college, we had less impact here in New Zealand. I've noted uh, through the media that there's been some criticism in all areas, uh, not only healthcare, other areas of being better prepared. You know, we should have anticipated things and perhaps should have made quicker or different decisions. Do you think the college could have made any different decisions or pathology should have made different decisions? It's it's an interesting question. I think better preparation would have um, allowed us to cope with that that huge surge that peaked earlier in the year in in Australia and, and is here. But a lot of those sorts of preparatory things really relied on people who had the uh, the levers to release resources and put resources in the right place. Um, the college doesn't have direct ability to spend money where it needs to be spent. The college can give advice. And I think it was important that the college didn't give advice that sort of soured the relationship that we had with those that we were giving advice to. And it wasn't necessarily always accepted. Could we have done things differently? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it was all such an unknown. We were feeling our way. We were just trying to just make sure we didn't trip up badly. And I don't think we did. I don't know if we could do anything different again. I'm sure we could. Perhaps you could probably have a, an, <laughs> some ideas on that because you were involved, but, but you were an interested observer, perhaps a little bit more. And uh, I don't know, Laurie, what do you think? Look, um, it's a very good question. Look, I think we were very thoughtful as things appeared and things came. I think we have a lot of experts in the college in epidemiology or microbiology, and they they were prepared, and so they did have a lot of the answers. We watched things as uh, they appeared, and we changed advice if we had new information. I think one of the things that struck me is because uh, we had the ability to offer very accurate testing with PCR testing and we were able to scale up very quickly and offer it in both countries at the required level and that that allowed us to protect the vulnerable quickly to tell where the infections were and both countries went pretty hard in terms of public health measures I guess isolation of, of, of people where required and I think we were able to support that. And I think that the world over, the countries that tested early and tested in high numbers, were able to really support the public health authorities. So, yeah, no, my thoughts are that actually we did did well and we're still doing well. Yeah, and I think you're right that um, we did change our mind at times and we did edit our policies and our advice and we did that in response to the altered situation and, and more information. And I And I feel comfortable saying, look, this has changed. Things have moved on and, and we need to um, alter our advice as appropriate. But also um, coming back to that ability to really test and um, scale it up, we've gained huge benefits from that. It's given us two years to allow time for vaccinations to become developed and then rolled out and then repeated. Um, and so that now we have a a different population. It's not a naive population to COVID. It's a population that has a, a huge resistance now 
to um, yeah. to the infection, so that we can then basically, hopefully, look forward to getting back to the new normal, um, where hopefully COVID just becomes another influenza virus every year that we immunise against and life continues. That's my hope. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think it's. Uh... I think both countries have done incredibly well. We've had amongst the lowest death rates in the world. Um, we've been able to, as you say, protect people to the point where we largely had uh, vaccine protection. I think that's no mean achievement. And the people, the people of both countries have gone along with it and supported it. So mm. I think it's a great achievement. And I'm proud of the role that we've played in pathology to, to allow this to happen. So when do you think you'll be able to visit us in Australia? Oh, sooner rather than later, I hope. But I, I suspect it will be towards the end of the year. As you know, I've got a couple of kids over there and some um, that we, we hope to be able to meet up with and have some family time together. Well, it was great talking with you, Michael. I really appreciate you expressing your views on the past and present events. Well, thank you, Laurie. It, likewise, it's um, been really great to, uh, to chat with you. I hope to be able to uh, visit in the flesh in the, in the next year or so when, when this all blows over. But um, I wish you all the best for the next, uh, for the next 18 months or so and uh, hope, hope we weather the storm together. Thank you. And thank you for your mentorship of me when I was vice president. I look forward to seeing you in the flesh. <laughs> Again, thank you. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut Podcast with RCPA President, Dr. Laurie Bott. To learn more about pathology, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.